Well, good morning, Sedaris. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're so glad that you're joining us online. Of course, this is not ideal, and, and hopefully we won't have to do this forever. But for now, um, this is the way uh, that we communicate the Word of God and sing praise and worship together. So if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, would you grab it now and turn to the book of Second Peter? It's near the back of your Bible. A short letter, so um, take a little bit of time to find that, or you can Google Second Peter. Uh, we're in a series through the two letters from Peter, and, and this is our second week in the second letter that Peter's written to churches um, all over Asia Minor at that time, which is modern-day Turkey. It would have been a circular letter that's passed around. And so we're going to be looking at that again today. And, and, and we go to the Word of God, and we continue to go to the Word of God, even in these times, as I said last week, because uh, when we can't find the words necessarily to express the deep pain and sorrow of our hearts um, and what we should do next— um, it's always a good idea to go to the Word of God, and God will give you the words to help start the conversation. And we'll see that again today. His words through Peter will help us to start a conversation about how do we move forward and, and begin to live out our, our desire for justice even now. And so we stand against injustice with our country and the world right now. Uh, we stand against injustice and and we, we cry out for God to intervene and to give us the strength and the wisdom for how to move forward. And we pray for our politicians and we pray for our mayors and we pray for the chiefs of police who are, are making policy changes and training changes. And we say, God, may your will be done. May justice come to our nation. Would you expose our sin and cleanse our hearts of all unrighteousness as we move towards your grace and your goodness and your virtue? And we'll look at that today. So would you just... Pray that God would be with us. Just, just maybe even just hold your hands out like this and ask the Spirit of God to come and open the eyes of our heart. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, come now. Send your Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit and give us eyes to see clearly. Give us strength to act bravely. Give us hope to persevere and not give up. So we pray now. Be with us. Connect us by your spirit. May we know that we're not alone. May we know that you are in control, God, and that you give us what we need in every moment for your glory and for our good and for the restoration of your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, before I read the text, I just want to tell you um, uh, something happened to me this week that reminded me of this historic moment that we're in. And um, I had lost my wallet four days ago, not four days ago, two weeks ago, <laughs> 14 days ago, I'd lost my wallet. And um, I was sure that I would find it. I, I, um, I could not think of where it possibly could have gone. I don't remember. I visited actually the last places where there was charges on my credit card and I ransacked my house and I thought my my 18-month-old son, Owen, had maybe hit it somewhere, and so, but I was sure. So I didn't give up. I didn't cancel my credit cards. I didn't get a new license. I was just, I, I was just sure I'd find it. And, he, and uh, just yesterday, I found it, and it was in uh, the front pocket of one of my sweatshirts that I almost always uh, never wear, and, and I found it, and I, got, I was so happy. I was so joyful. I had I'd found this thing that I knew was there. I knew it was there, and I had uncovered it, and, and I started yelling, Allie, Allie, I found my wallet, and I was dancing, and the boys were dancing with me because they could tell Dad was so excited, and I was thinking about that after that happened, about just how excited it was to find something that was lost, and I feel a little bit like this right now in this moment that, um, like I shared last week, my heart is heavy as I, as I look at and understand the deep corruption uh, of our country, of how desire has, has, has led to this sin uh, that really just marks generation after generation of people in our country, and how I'm affected by that. So my heart is deep in sadness and sorrow and lament, but at the same time, I kind of feel like I felt when I found my wallet. I'm just so excited that we seem to have found a collective conscience again. 
that our country seems uh, to have a soul again. And we're actually calling out uh, what is wrong and broken and sinful. And, and, and in that, I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating that we're finally, as a nation, talking about the thing that we talk about every week as a church. That sin is real, that it's deep, that it's profound, and that the solution to it is so needed but challenging. And so, so I feel like I found my wallet. I feel, like, I feel like it was lost and now it's found. Like we have this collective conscience, but we have to ask, what will we do with it now that we've found it? What do we do next? That is a question that we all must ask ourselves. That is a question the Christians have been asking for a long time. Another thing that I've been thinking through all of this is how the Apostle Paul, when he was in Athens, and uh, he was sharing about this gospel of Jesus, and uh, the philosophers, lots of philosophers in Athens, uh, invited him to come and, and share at what, what, what was called Mars Hill, this rock where philosophers would come and share ideas. And, uh, and Paul got there, and, and he said, he said, I look around and I walk through your city and, and there's so many temples and everybody uh, seems to have many gods that they are worshiping. And, and he said, you seem to be a very religious people. You even have this statue to the unknown God, Paul said. He said, but now I declare to you that which was unknown is known. And he tells them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I feel kind of that same way that like I'm celebrating the fact, I'm saying, I, I look around at our nation and our city and I say, uh, we seem to be very zealous for justice. And I'm so glad for that. But then I want to say, let me tell you about the God of justice, about how he is fighting for justice through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection. What, what you worship as unknown, we worship in the person of Jesus. And so I, I sort of feel all those things. Like I'm excited that we're talking about injustice and corruption and brokenness. Uh, and I also want to tell people that, that, that we know of a God who is the God of justice. And so uh, what we're going to do today is look at this text and have it teach us how we can be people um, that live for justice. And we can be people uh, that love virtuous living. And we can be people that through our lives um, can prove the truth of the message that we have of redemption and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And so that's what, that's what we'll do. And um, so if you would, I'll just read the text for us today. So this is Peter writing to a group of churches, and he writes this. He says, for this very reason, verse 5, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, and having forgotten that he was cleansed from the former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what you'll see in there are these eight virtues. And if you remember last week, if you didn't, if you didn't listen to last week, go back and listen to last week. Because these two texts are, are, are really one big argument that Peter is making. What we said last week is that when we recognize and we know and we have knowledge of what God has done for us in Jesus, meaning that God initiated and acted for our salvation and our rescue from the corruption of the world that's caused by desire gone rampant, when we realize that God rescued us and did something that we could not do, we could not escape that corruption without divine power. When we see that he's done that, even while
while we were rebellious against him, uh, that's really talking about God's grace, undeserved gift that he acted uh, before we ever acted towards him, that when we understand that grace, it will inevitably lead to our action to be like God, to take upon ourselves and participate in his divine nature, his divine moral excellence, his divine virtues. And so then uh, Peter goes into these eight divine virtues that we should be increasing in in our life. So that's, that's sort of the flow of thought. And so we need both spiritual and tangible rescue from this corruption. We need both of those things to happen, and we need God's power to help us then live out this new nature that he's given to us and granted to us in Jesus Christ. So these, these two sermons really go together. And what we realize um, when we look at this list of virtues, this is not a list of virtues that would have been foreign to the Greek people um, and to the Roman Empire, these are things that Greek and Roman writers uh, would talk about as well. That's why we have Greek and Roman words. They're not making up new words here. They're using what people already know about is, are virtuous things. And, and uh, Peter is saying, now these things come together uniquely, and Christians have access to these things because of the divine nature that God has implanted in them at their conversion when they knew Jesus. So they'll be able to... to in a sense, do this to a greater extent and, and with stamina and longevity in ways that the world will struggle to do because God has rescued them from the power of corruption. And so we'll look at that. And so Paul's, or Peter's saying uh, the motivation necessary in order to live out these virtues, even virtues that you see around us in the world, and we see virtue now, uh, but Peter would say to us even now, like in order to live this out over the long haul, um, that will require that you remember what God has done for you in Christ. That's that knowledge of Christ. That's that knowledge of grace. That, that grace is really the only sufficient motivator for long-term virtuous living. And, and that hypothesis or, or that question is really, I think, in the forefront of my mind right now is... Um, everyone's talking about virtuous living. Everyone's talking about justice. And we celebrate that. The question will be, will it be those who reject God and reject the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ who are able to sustain, sustain the needed uh, enthusiasm for change towards virtuous, just living? Or uh, will the, the church, those who are remembering and singing about and, and, and claiming for themselves the grace of God? Will they be the ones that have the stamina to, to lead, that leads to long-lasting generational change? Uh, we really don't know. We really don't know right now. Uh, but I think what we have to do as the church is we have to acknowledge and admit with tears that, that um, many people in many ages, and particularly in our country, were claiming for themselves the grace of God for personal salvation, while at the same time denying the virtuous living that God was calling them to, denying justice and equality, which God told them was, was part and parcel to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they were claiming it for themselves, calling themselves Christians, saying God had saved them by grace, but then living apart from the gracious ways of God. We have to acknowledge that and call that out and repent of that um, and confess that. And maybe even some of us have lived that way. Now, this is actually what Peter is doing in his letter. He's calling out Christians that are like that. He's calling out these false teachers. It's the whole reason he wrote the letter. That are saying one thing, but living contrary to that way. And so let me actually read that for you. So turn over uh, to chapter 2 of this letter. And I'm going I'm to just read nine verses here. Because this really gets at the heart of who Peter's preaching against when he talks about this virtue. Okay? So 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 10, says this. And, and especially those... Speaking about those false teachers who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
So they're leading and teaching in the church and talking about God's grace, uh, but then they're, they're defiling themselves and despising authority. He goes on to say, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will always be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in the deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children they are. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These, these teachers, they are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Back to that word we talked about last week, corruption. So we'll go way more into that text when we get there in the letter. There's a lot to unpack there. But I just want to show you that Peter is primarily talking against those who claim the grace of God and claim that they're preaching the gospel of Jesus, but are in fact living a life contrary to the gospel of Jesus. Those two have to go together. Christian leaders and Christian living must not be controlled by corrupt desire. We can say the right words, and we have said the right words even in the past, but we don't live out those words. This is the hypocrisy that Peter's speaking against. This is the hypocrisy that we need to preach and stand against in the church of Jesus Christ here in America. So Peter's basically saying, words alone are hollow. Words words are important, but words alone are hollow. He'll say this, your virtuous life is essential to your witness in the world, or you could say to your protest in the world, or you could say probably the best way to say it is for your contending for God's righteousness in the world. Your life matters. Without a changed lifestyle and changed actions, your words are empty and you're still in your sin. That this is what Peter is telling this church is. And so I'm so anxious in this moment. I'm anxious that that we are saying finally the right words, and we need to keep saying those words, but we must make sure that we don't let those words end with words, that they must move to action, that, that what we are speaking now will lead to real, lasting change for righteousness and justice in our country. That, that's my anxiety that this will be, be another example of, of many words, um, but that don't move to action. So let's just not be a part of that, okay, as a church. We need to say the words, and then we need to act upon those words. And that acting upon those words will take a lifetime. It'll take our lifetime. We can't just get so excited right now and then stop, okay? So, so, so let me give you an example. We can say, and we should say, And I say, and I've said many times in the last two weeks, black lives do matter. But I have to be honest with you. I believe that in my heart. I believe that when I say that, uh, that I'm, I'm speaking truthfully. But you actually won't know for sure. You won't truly know how real those words are until you look back on my life and you see if I lived those words out, did I over and over again 
over the course of my earthly existence, live out these words that I speak that black lives matter. Time will tell. I pray and I hope that I can live out the words that I say. It'll take work and stamina and all the virtues that Peter's about to talk about. Now, to be a little bit more specific to Peter's audience, this this is what Peter's saying to his audience. You can say and you can think and even believe or think you believe that Jesus is Lord, but if you, or but you won't actually know how true that act, that those words are until you examine a life, a full life that over and over again lives out the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. So anybody can say Jesus is Lord. These false teachers were saying that Jesus is Lord. Me and you can say that Jesus is Lord, but Peter's saying the proof will be in the pudding. You won't actually know unless you look at their life. And I would say a life lived day after day, year after year, decade after decade for God's justice and God's truth. Now, I've also seen the opposite side of this many, many times. I've seen people who struggle to say the words, Jesus is Lord, but live every day of their life as if he is. So they seek to live as if he's Lord, even though they struggle at times to say it with their mouth. So this really, um, there's, there's sort of a hierarchy here that I just want to point out. And, and, and it starts with the worst kind of person, Peter would say. The worst kind of person is the person who says with their mouth one thing, but doesn't live it out with their life. A better kind of person is a person who doesn't say with their mouth, but lives it out in their life. That's better than the first, but not as good as the third kind of person. The third kind of person being the one who says it with their mouth, and then lives it out with their life. That's the kind of person that we want to be. That's the kind of person we want to be in this moment. We want to both say the things that are true about God's desire for justice and righteousness and reconciliation, and then we want to be people that live it out each and every day of our life. That's the kind of people that we want to be. So that's a very long introduction to this text. Um, so, so we need to say, Peter, Peter's reminding us, let our words say that Jesus has died for me, that he rose again for me, that he gives me new life in him, that he's restoring all things, that he's my Lord, that he's granted me participation in his divine nature, that I get to be morally excellent by the power of the Spirit because of what he's done for me by his grace. So we need to say that thing. And then look at verse 10 of our text that we read. Look at verse 10. We need to, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election, for if we practice these qualities, we will never fall. So he's saying, confirm that which you have claimed for yourself, confirm it by the way you live your life. Okay? Confirm it by the way you live your life. So how do you confirm it? So we're going to look at eight virtues that are associated with God and his moral excellence. Again, these are virtues that the general public can participate in as well and do participate in. Many Greek writers and philosophers would talk about these virtues. So these aren't necessarily new, but there's a new way in which they work together. And we'll see that for God's glory and our good and the good of our world. So the, the, the eight virtues are faith. Virtue, which is another way of saying moral excellence or goodness. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection or brotherly love, and then love or agape love. So in the Greek, there's four different words for love. We only have one. The English language is, is lame. But they have four, and I'll explain the difference when we get to those. So um, these eight virtues, Peter says, are part of what we work towards diligently to grow in these um, because we know of what God's done for us. Okay, now how are these connected? How are these eight connected? I don't think that, that it's necessarily um, a step-by-step process, meaning like I don't have to master faith before I can move to virtue. I don't have to master virtue or moral excellence until I can to grow in knowledge. These things are... 
Um, one way to think of them is it's more like a cake, okay? So when you're baking a cake, um, you put in all the ingredients and you can kind of put them in and into order because you're gonna mix them all up and then you put the cake in the oven and, and it comes out on the other end. The only thing I would say um, uh, with that in mind is there are these two bookends, which is faith and love, faith and agape love. And so if you're thinking about this baking analogy, uh, I think faith is kind of that essential uh, necessary ingredient. It's like flour. Like, you can make a cake without flour, like, but let's be honest, not that good. Um, okay? And it's not really cake, okay? So what makes cake cake is faith. And so you can have all these virtues, but if you don't have faith, it's not really cake. And then at the end of that is agape love, meaning that's like the end product. It's like um, you, make a, you bake a cake, and uh, you, you take it over to your friend's house, you knock on the door, and you say, agape! Right? It's like, it's the presentation, it's the final product is this agape love, and we'll get there. So those bookends, I think, are important. It starts with faith, and it leads to love, and we can mix all these things together and, and along the way. They don't have to be in order, so to speak. They're related, but, but they really can be mixed up. Uh, maybe another way, another analogy that might be helpful is to think of this as a virtue tree. The roots are really faith, meaning uh, without faith, none, none of the godly virtues will really spring up. Like it starts with faith. So those are the roots of the tree. And then there's all these branches of virtue that end up showing in the world. So if you have real faith, these, these branches will grow. And then on, on the end of all these branches, even though they, they grow differently and wildly uh, at times and at different paces and, and in, in different directions, um, the same fruit is at the end of all this virtue, uh, which is the agape love. So the agape love is like the fruit. So you have the roots and then you have the fruit. You need those bookends. So, so they're connected in that way. Um, so let me now tell you how, um, how to understand these virtues. So first he says, um, for this reason, make every effort, so you have to participate in this, it doesn't happen to you, to supplement, or a better word translation would be, add to, add to your faith with virtue. Now, faith here is the Greek word pistis, which is this intellectual assurance, this trusting oath that you make to God. Okay, so your faith is this trusting um, assurance uh, that he uh, has done this for you in Jesus Christ, okay? So your faith, you supplement that or add to that virtue, okay? So you build upon that faith with virtue, and virtue here in the Greek is the word arite, which we saw back up in uh, the verses from last week where it says uh, that Jesus has called us um, by his own glory and excellence. The word excellence there is the same word down here uh, for virtue. So virtue means moral excellence or goodness, okay? So you should add to your faith with virtue, moral excellence, living based on God's good character. So you've got to understand who God is. So the more you grow in your knowledge of God, the more you'll be able to lean into his moral character and excellence. Okay, so then you add to that virtue knowledge, Knowledge here is the Greek word gnosis, um, which is like a, it's not just like um, data, okay? It's not just like getting smarter or getting more degrees. It's this very deep spiritual knowledge. It's the knowledge of Christ that really does come forth from the scripture. So if you want to grow in your knowledge um, in the way that, that Peter's talking about it here, you want to root yourself in the scriptures and, and, and gain knowledge of God's will for your life, God's will for his world, and so you gain knowledge. So it's not just living moral excellency, it's gaining knowledge to understand God's will and moving towards the things in the world that God desires and wants. Now, what do you add to your knowledge? You add self-control. So you add self-control to your knowledge. Now, um, this was actually a very common uh, Greek virtue. The Greeks loved to talk about self-control, and so um, uh, you've got to remember Christians aren't the only one with self-control, okay? Anybody can have self-control, but Christian self-control is marked differently because it leads to this, as we'll see, agape love 
at the end of all things. And, and really, the kind of self-control Peter, I think, is referencing here is really a shot across the bow of these false teachers who were licentious in their actions. They were indulging in lust and sexual lifestyle, and they were greedy, and, and they were showing no self-control with what they consumed and ate and drank, and they were getting drunk. And so, so really, eating, drinking, and sexual desire is the kind of self-control that Peter's talking about here. And he's, and he's saying, saying, how can you follow these false teachers who are showing no self-control, which is one of the divine virtues? How can you follow them? And so we need to have self-control, Peter says. And then he says, add to that self-control steadfastness. Steadfastness here is the Greek word hypename. And, and it can be um, probably better translated even endurance or perseverance. So you need to have self-control and you need to live a mo- with moral excellence and you need to gain knowledge and you need to have faith um, and grow in all of those things. And you need to do it not just right now, but over the long term. Christians have this access to perseverance. This is a very actually unique virtue in the spiritual sense. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans would talk about it in a physical sense, but really Peter's talking about it in a spiritual sense, that you would persevere in the faith's faith um, across all sorts of persecution and people trying to draw you away into false ideologies like these false teachers. Persevere. Keep going. Steadfastness is so important. That's one of the divine qualities that God gives us when we are converted to Christ. So then you add to that steadfastness, godliness. And this is piety, reverence for God, reverence for his ways. Um, this is really respect for God's rules and his law, okay? So um, this is one of the things that, that I think just we need to remember. As we seek justice now, let's not be irreverent to God or disrespectful to him and his his uh, rule and way, uh, which includes being disrespectful to other human beings. Like, we need to be pious people in the midst of our fight for justice. This is what Paul says. All these things mixed together. We can't throw piety and holiness out the window, even if it's to seek a good thing of God. And so then he says, add to that godliness, add to that godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection. So what is he talking about here? The better term is actually um, brotherly love. The Greek word is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's, that's where it comes from, right here from the Bible. So um, we to add to all these things brother, brotherly love. And it's really this idea of familial affection. Now, this again was common in the Greek-Roman culture, this idea of loving your kin in a deep, special, unique way. What's so profound and countercultural is that actually Peter is applying that to the family of God. He's saying every single Christian in your community, in your church, you should love with brotherly affection, as if they're your own bloodline, as if they're your own biological kin. You should love them the same, whether they're the same race, whether they're the same socioeconomic class, whether they, they're Roman citizens or not Roman citizens, whether they're Jew or they're Gentile, no matter who they are, you love them as if they were your own family. So it's taking this very Greek-Roman uh, virtue, and it is now applying it to all of God's children. It's an amazing gospel truth, and, and Peter is highlighting it here. On the news the other day, I saw... Um, I think it's ABC News or something. I, I, I saw somebody being interviewed, and they were, they were talking about uh, the current times, and they were saying, we need to be our brother's keeper. And I, I, I was like, that's amazing. The culture, the world is affirming biblical truth. And that idea of being our brother's keeper comes from the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers. And uh, they both bring sacrifices to God. And, and God is happy with Abel's, but he's not happy with Cain's. And Cain becomes jealous and ends up murdering his brother Abel. Uh, and he buries his body out in the field. And, and God, at that moment, was still um, interacting very personally uh, with human beings in a way even that he does not now. And, and, and he's talking to Cain, and he says, Cain, where is your brother? And, and Cain says, what am I, my brother's keeper? Well, anyhow, the idea is, as the people of God, we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. 
We are, as the family of God, meant to love each and every person who calls upon the name of Christ as our brother and our sister. And here the culture is calling the world to brotherly love. And it was, to me, such a rebuke even of the church that we have not lived with increasing levels of brotherly love for our brothers and sisters in the faith. So, this is a great starting place for how we we live out virtue in our world. Christians should be known for their affection for all of God's children. In in fact, in the early church, um, this is what Christians were known for, is loving each other and sharing everything and having everything in common. And actually, Greek and Romans who were not yet Christians... They actually despised the Christians for that because they thought Philadelphia was meant only within the family unit and everybody that was not kin was competition. And so they hated the fact that Christians were were, were redefining what uh, brotherly love meant. They despised it. And you can read about that in the early church fathers. They talk about how they were, uh, one of the things the culture hated about them is the way they loved with Philadelphia. In fact, Tertullian uh, has a great quote. I'll just read part of it. Um, He was born in about... AD uh, 160, and he says, um, we have all things in common, speaking about the church, the whole church, we have all things in common except our wives. (laughs) And so um, this was very much and always has been a part of the Christian church, this this idea of brotherly love, that we love um, non-biological siblings in the faith as if they're our own siblings, as, as the way the world loves their own family. It's beautiful. And it should, to be honest, be a shame for us if we don't love our brown and black brothers and sisters in the faith, our siblings in the faith. If we, if our heart doesn't go out to them as if our own uh, biological sibling was being affected by this, was being talked about in these ways and treated, if we don't feel that for our our black brothers and sisters, then we got to do some real heart work. This is our family that this is happening to. So um, in that vein, the book that I've decided on for our book club, I sent it out in an email on Friday, um, so you can go back and find the link to that, is a book by John Perkins, who has been fighting for racial reconciliation within the church for his whole life. It's his final book. It's called One Blood, and it's this idea of of how do we love each other within the church as if we are one blood, because we are in Christ. And then the final virtue, when you mix all these things up and you put it in the oven, the thing that comes out is this last virtue, which is, uh, in your Bible it just says love, but it's the Greek word agape. It's agape love. Like I said, there's four Greek words, and agape love is the kind of love that God has for us. And, And here's the unique nature of agape love. Agape love is different from all the other loves, because all the other loves make sense. There's this uh, reciprocal relationship. Agape love's different. It says that God loved us while we were still enemies of him. While we still denied him, while we cursed his name, God died for us. That's agape love. That he doesn't just look at his friends and say, I love you. He doesn't just even look... um, at those people who generally agree with him and his stances and say, I love you. He looks at the person who totally disagrees, who actually says some nasty things about him, and he says, I love you, and I'm going to actually sacrifice myself to love you. This is this giving, sacrificial love that leads to reconciliation, and that is the unique thing about Christian virtue. That when you mix it all up and you're increasing, it leads to this love like God loves. Because that's, that's the most divine part of the moral excellency of God. That when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and gave his life for us. Even, even death on a cross, Jesus died and absorbed our wrath and, and paid our debt and took it upon himself. And we are now free to then go live and act towards others with agape love. This is the, this is the chain link of, of moral excellence that we are called to when we understand the grace of God towards us. Are we doing this? Are we doing this? Um, let's look at ver- verse 8. 
uh, because I think this is important. So how do we seek these virtues out? It says this, verse 8. For if these qualities or these virtues are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just that you have them, it's that they're increasing and you're growing in them. Do you understand that? So um, virtual uh, or, or virtue is not a sentiment, it's action. And so you can actually engage in the actions of this virtuous life more and more over your life. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, if you do that, if you keep growing more and more in this virtue, you are confirming that you have been called by God. Because some people, I think, can do it for a season and then they grow weary. Christians should be ever increasing in these virtues, particularly the virtue of brotherly love and agape love. Their faith drives them to increase. So you should be growing. Now, this, is, this does not mean that every Christian will be sort of, when you just look um, uh, respective of other people, the most virtuous in each of these categories. There can be non-Christians who are more virtuous than Christians. Uh, the key here is that you're growing in virtue. That is the key. And so... Um, it, it, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you might be, your starting place might be way back here, and you're growing and you're growing and you're growing and you're growing, okay? Uh, but there could be non-Christians who live very virtuous lives, and that's important to understand. So it's not just to say, whoever's the most virtuous must be the closest to God. No, it's whoever has the long, the long consistent track record of growing in righteousness, growing in virtue, is, you could say, empowered by God, motivated by the grace of God, And so we need to be growing, not necessarily the most virtuous in each of these areas. Though I hope over time that becomes the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, um, maybe an example of that might be uh, even our own church, okay? Um, we have to understand we seek and long and desire for diversity in our church. Um, age diversity, race diversity, socioeconomic diversity. This is the longing of our heart. But if we just compare ourselves to other churches and other parts of the country, other parts of the city even, we have to be honest that we're, we're not the most virtuous in that way. That doesn't mean uh, that God is not with us and that we are not growing in that. I can look from where we, you've got to understand where we started. See, everybody has different starting points. Where did we start? We started with a very white Norwegian pastor. That's me. And, and, uh, and, and just a couple friends who all happened to be white. And we live in a very white part of Seattle. And Seattle generally is a very white city. And so, over time though, we are seeing increasing growth in this area. And I'm excited about that. And we celebrate that. Praise God. We're not done yet. We hope that, that in 10 years you look back and we say, wow, look how far God's brought us. Because this is the desire of our heart. But I can say those words, but we have to put those words into action. And so you should see a change in two years, in four years, in eight years. You should see change over time. If not, you should, we should speak up. You see, we, we, we need to be ever increasing. That, that needs to be, that's the way of the Christian. Not that we're all the way there yet. It's a lifelong process, okay? Um, it's not perfectionism. Uh, uh, all this stuff will be different depending on the circumstances of where you live and, and where you started and, and how much growth you have to do. But are we ever increasing? Um, so, uh, praise God that we're, we're growing, but we have so much work to do. Join us in helping us become a more virtuous church in these ways. Now look at verse uh, uh, 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Oh, excuse, excuse me, excuse me. Verse 9 is what I was uh, hoping to talk about. The, uh, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Um, we can become so nearsighted, show, and probably the better translation is short-sighted, meaning that we, we kind of block ourselves in and we have tunnel vision and we don't let ourselves see the bigger picture. That, we, that, Paul, that Peter says we almost become blind um, to our lack of virtue or to, to the ways that we're acting and where it will lead us. Uh, Peter says, don't do that. And he says, if you do that, you will begin to act like those who are not saved. 
those who are unconverted, as those who have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. What he's saying here is that if you allow yourself to be so nearsighted, so short-sighted, and block everything out, and you forget that, that God is doing such a big work in the world and that he actually died for your sins. You can get so myopic. He's saying, don't do that. Don't be carried along. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember how big his plan of restoration is. And that will give us the endurance to keep moving forward and keep pushing, even maybe when the culture stops pushing and moving forward. Christians should lead the way. Uh, maybe not right out front in every moment, but they should be the ones that are plodding along, uh, growing consistently towards virtue, and they never stop working for God's long-term vision of his restoration and his kingdom that comes with Jesus and, and, is, and wiping away every tear. So don't become short-sighted. Now, um, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you understand the grace of God and move to be like God in the way you live and act, you can be assured that you'll get a welcome invitation at the coming of Jesus when his kingdom comes. Uh, you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So here's uh, four things I want to give you as a way forward, a way to apply this uh, these big principles to your life. The first is this. Be very careful to, to only follow. Uh, you can listen to and you can learn from, but only truly follow those who reflect the moral excellency and character of God. Only, only, only follow those types of people. Um, if you can't see Jesus and, and see uh, them being like Jesus. Don't, don't follow them. Don't give your whole life to following them. That's, that's why we, every Wednesday, are going to be sending out a resource that's gospel-informed. These are people that have proven over the long track record that they can be trusted uh, because they follow God and seek the face of Jesus in their life. And so the things they have to say, for instance, about racial injustice, um, we can trust that, that their life and their words match up. And so you want to follow people whose life and word match up. Uh, the second thing, um, we have to understand that Christians of every past era, epoch, um, every empire, civilization, society, they have allowed themselves to live with this profound disconnection between the head, the heart, and the hands. They've allowed themselves, uh, we cannot be that kind of people. We should learn and grow and see the corruption of our land, understand how we got here, understand the fullness, uh, learn to listen and make it personal for us. So we start with the head, uh, but we have to make it personal. It has to seep down into our heart. Our heart has to break with the brokenhearted. We can't just leave it in the head. It has to, it has to get into our heart. It has to hurt us. We have to lose, I, think, I think it's okay to lose some sleep over this. Okay, And then it can't just sit in the heart, though. We can't just feel all those deep feelings. We have to allow those deep feelings to move out of us into our hands, into action. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, you hear the gospel, and it seeps into your heart, and you have this deep heart knowledge of Jesus. But that's not enough. Let it go out now and be the hands and feet of Jesus. So it goes from the head to the heart to the hands. We have to. We ha these are connected. We can't live in disconnection. And we, we confess and we repent that at times we have lived disconnected. Third, many are talking about this moment, and I love it, this moment uh, that could mark our history moving forward. Praise God. Yes and amen. But we have to acknowledge that even getting the right words and getting, and, and getting them applied in the Constitution or in law enforcement manuals or in training or in our legal system, all this stuff needs to happen and we should fight for this and we should push for this because we can do better. But we have to acknowledge that our legacy, if we truly want this moment to be a moment of true change, our legacy won't be this moment. It will be what happens after this moment, what happens day in and day out. In every moment, we must live out the epiphanies of this moment. 
Every moment we must live out the epiphanies of this moment, day by day, for the rest of our lives, if truly the legacy that we leave in this nation is one of change. So, so you have to, you, ha, you can't, this can be a moment, but the church should lead the way and say, we're going to let this moment change every other moment because we are going to, to live against greed. We are going to live against the lust of our heart. We're going to live against corruption and the corruption of power. We're going to live against racism. We're going to live against all these things every single day for the rest of our life. That's how change happens. That's the transformation that God talks about. And so in this way, and this is my fourth point, we need to live as artists, not as businessmen. I I have a little bit of both in me. (laughs) I've worked in the business world. It's all about the bottom line. I've worked in the art world, which is, this is a little bit of art. I'm sharing something, and I don't know who's going to watch. I don't know who's going to be impacted. Businessmen think we only do the things that we know lead to results, and once they stop leading to results, we'll stop doing those things. That's how businessmen think. Artists think what is true and right and good and virtuous and beautiful, I'll do those things regardless of if if anyone notices, regardless if anyone changes, regardless of if our country goes the other way. I'm going to do these things. That's how an artist lives. And most artists don't get recognized for for the beauty of their art until they're dead and gone, right? Very few artists get noticed in the moment. We need to live as artists not businessmen. We need to live the virtuous life whether or not it changes our world in the ways we want it to change. Whether or not it leads to our success or people liking us or or, or people following us. We live the divine character and moral excellency of God seen most fully in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, uh, uh, most present in the cross of Jesus Christ as he, with agape love, gave himself to us while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, while we rebelled against him, while we hated him. We lived with lo- he lived with love towards us. When we live that way in this world, we are artists for God's glory and grace and goodness, and, and, and some people won't appreciate it until we're dead and gone, or until they're dead and gone. But we live like artists for virtue and justice and beauty and goodness in every way, in every every way that plays out in our world, because it's the right and godly thing to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, I thank you for my friends. God, would, th- would this message just seep into our soul? Would it go from our head to our heart to our hands? Would be truly be vehicles, tangible resources and instruments of reconciliation and justice and peace, God? Whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in our family unit, um, whether, that, whether we have a role in government, God, let us use whatever place you've put us to be real hands of your virtuous justice in the world. God, help us to do that. Just bring to mind right now how we can be agents of real change in real ways, however big or however small that might be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.